You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Bibles 2, there we go, Psalm 25. I've got a couple of announcements I want you to remember. This uh, Friday is our Christmas Eve service, so don't forget to come out to that at 5 p.m. And then um, Sunday, the 26th, at 10 a.m., and we're going to have one service. So we're going to pack it in and uh, be together uh, on that Sunday, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, driving in this morning, I was thinking how fitting the weather is for the way we feel. And <laughs> it's been a hard 24 hours for a lot of us as we've grieved with um, the Tudor family. <clears throat> Certainly not easy uh, to watch them walk this road. Sometimes I think that when God calls us to bear each other's burdens, you know, primarily we think of that in a very physical way. But I think there are times when God allows us to bear each other's burdens emotionally, which is a spiritual thing, which means we're taking some of their grief upon us and I felt that way. I know you, many of you have felt that way. And in a way, it's lightening their load, even though we can't see it. So I want to encourage you with that. God is good. He has a purpose for everything. We don't always know what the purpose is. You know, David said, teach me to number my days. And Keisha brought that up in the teaching this morning. And Certainly, we all think we will live out a normal lifespan, and sometimes that's cut short, and we don't always know the reason for that. God doesn't expect us to figure it out, but he does expect us to trust, trust in him, that he's a good and glorious God. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to trust in him. And I'm going to ask you if you would allow the Lord to encourage your hearts through the text this morning. David in Psalm 25, his soul was low. Kind of a fitting text for us this morning. He says in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He had to lift it up because it was doubted, trodden, discouraged. We can identify with that. So I'm going to ask you to lift up your soul this morning. I want to ask the Lord to bless us over the next few minutes as we look into his word together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, it is with a heavy heart, Lord, that we bow our heads. We think of the Tudor family and we pray for them. We ask that, Lord, you would encourage them in some supernatural way. Father, you'd come around the family. I think of Gabe and Zane and Ireland, Lord, who are grieving over the loss of their brother. And Rose, Lord, who's 
indescribable pain which she has to walk through. And Sean is a father, Lord. I pray for him that he would be able to gather his family together and encourage them. So, Lord, bless them. You are good. And we stand here this morning gathered together because we recognize that you are glorious. We would want to be in no other place than standing in your glory. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best ways to lift somebody's spirits is through music. Um, if you recall, Saul's soul was often discouraged and he was oftentimes vexed and he would bring in David who would play for him and his soul would be revived. Music does that to us while we're sitting here this morning, you know, listening to the music that was being sung and singing it with the, the band. We, our hearts, I hope your heart was lifted in some way, especially as you sing those truths. And it's hard to pay attention on a day like this, but when you're paying attention to those words, they encourage and they lift us up. I was thinking about the Christmas season and, and how the music at Christmas is just different than any other time of the year. I mean, not even Easter can compare to the music at Christmas time. There's something special about Christmas, the darkest time of year. And God gives us these carols that are so beautiful. One of the most beloved Christmas carols of all time was published in 1843. I'm wondering how many of you would know what that carol is. Well, it wasn't a song. It was a story. And it was entitled A Christmas Carol, written by Charles Dickens. In this story, Dickens created a memorable cast of characters. And center stage was the unforgettable Ebenezer Scrooge. To help make Scrooge even more loathsome, Dickens surrounded him with a cast of good and cheerful characters. And nearest to him was the timid and oppressed Bob Cratchit, who was dutiful and Christmas-loving in his work. I always envisioned Bob Cratchit hovered over his desk trying to warm his hands because it was so cold. Could you imagine working for somebody like that? It was reminded me of a story. There was a man who one time took his daughter to the daddy-daughter work day at his office. And upon arriving, the little girl grew sad, had a frown on her face, and all the workers came around her and said, what's wrong, sweetie? And she said, where are all the clowns my dad said he worked with? <laughs> well, Scrooge was more than a clown. As Dickens describes him in his novel, he was a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hmm. What makes this story so memorable is the transformation that Scrooge makes throughout the story from a gritty, skinflint old man to a lovable, overly generous character whose concern for other gains him favor with everyone. The Christmas Carol truly is a story of salvation, where Scrooge is essentially saved from himself. How did this salvation occur? Well, he was visited by his old 
workmate, Marley. And then when Jacob Marley passes on in the story, he is visited by the ghost of Christmas past, the the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of things yet to be. These three spirits take Scrooge on a journey to revisit his childhood, his first love, his eager ambitions, and his fall into selfish misery. And one night, these spirits can reconstruct Scrooge's life to show him that what lies ahead of him is just doom. Let me ask you, if you were cast in the story of A Christmas Carol, what character would you be? How many of you would sign up for the role of Ebenezer Scrooge? I doubt many of us would. We would probably want to be cast as one of the more amiable characters in the story. But the truth is, all of us have a dark side to us. All of us have things that cause our soul to be cast down. All of us have sin in the recesses of our heart. We know that there is sin that we've committed or sin that lingers and it discourages us. This secret sin or sin of the past causes us to flinch spiritually, we recoil at times, wondering how we could desire these things. And because of this, we lose in part the joy of our salvation. And to put it plainly, our souls grow low. By the end of the night, Scrooge comes face to face with Christmas yet to come. He knows that what's marked out for him is just death. Scrooge is at a low point. And when you're hit rock bottom, as Tony Evans once said, when you hit rock bottom, that's when you see Jesus, who is the rock, at the bottom. And this is true for for Scrooge. At least he was able to make his way back. In Psalm 25, David is much in the same place. He has hit rock bottom, and he looks to the Lord for encouragement. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, some of you may recognize that this psalm was preached this summer by Pastor Brad. And you say, why am I preaching this again? Well, someone once said you can either be original or good. I decided to be good and re-preach Pastor Brad's message. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm not going to re-preach it. I'm just going to hit on a few verses, mainly verses 6 through 10 this morning. But I want to see the context. The context is that David, much like Scrooge, his soul is low and it needs lifting up. And much like the story of the Christmas carol, verses 6 through 10 take us through this idea of the past, present, and future. I want to read this together. So let's stand as we normally do, verses 6 through 10. I'll read it aloud. You can... Look at the text. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. The word of God to the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. 
It's interesting that in verses 6 through 10, David revisits his past, present, and future to revive his spirits. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 25, looking forward to December 25th, I want you to discover the past, the present, and the future of God's glorious carol that he has written about your life. My hope is that your soul will be lifted. I want you to notice three things. Your past is marked by God's mercy and steadfast love and covers your sin. Your your present is marked by God's steadfast love and goodness that leads you in God's way. And your future is marked by God's steadfast love and faithfulness. The faithfulness of the Lord that leads to your salvation. This is a glorious truth this morning. And I hope your hearts take great comfort in what is here in the text. So number one, let's look at this. Your past is marked by God's mercy and steadfast love that covers your sin. Look at verse Uh, verse 6, and then the first part of verse 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Verses 6 and 7, we find the word remember used three times. Each of these three times is strategic in David lifting up his soul. He says, remember, in verse 6, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Mercy and steadfast love. The word mercy is not the Hebrew word hesed, which you might expect if you know Hebrew at all. It's a different Hebrew word, which means womb, which is interesting. It is also translated deep love and compassion, and it's talking about the love a mother has for her child. This is the beauty of Scripture, how David does this. He weaves in these these words. In Isaiah 49 through 15, it's translated womb. And this is the Lord speaking. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Those words compassion and womb are both the same. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. David calls upon the Lord and he says, I know you have a deep love for me, much like a a woman has for her child that she gave birth to. Can you think of any higher love, any deeper love than a love a mother has for her child? It's hard. It's impossible that this is what David clings to in verse 6. He's discouraged by his sins in verse 7, so he looks back and he says, Lord, remember your mercy. Remember that I am your child. Remember that I belong to you, O Lord. And then he says, and your steadfast love. That is the word hesed. That's the covenant love that God speaks of throughout Scripture. The covenant that he made, that he will not forsake us. It's also translated mercy or not getting what we deserve. And he says this in verse 6, for they have been from of old. Over 300 times that word is used 
to show no time stamp or no time significance. In other words, there's no past or future this. It's, it's a word of eternality. These things have always existed in you. And because of that, verse 7, he says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. You know, all of us are like this. We want God to know us, but we don't want him to think of us as according to our sins. The time that we burned the barn down or somebody skinned the cat or you stole candy from the local, local grocery store. When you cheated on your homework assignment, you don't want God to remember those sins. Of course we don't. This is a prayer that we can all pray Verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. We have many, don't we? We have many sins that we've committed. And if we think that God is just staring at us because of our sin, it brings us low. But if we claim this and we say, wait a second, remember your relationship with me, Lord, that I am your child, that you love me. I have strayed from you, and I have sinned against you, but you will never leave me nor forsake me. That's great comfort. It's great comfort. God is bigger than your sin. The problem with it is we remember our sin all too often, don't we? We like to recall our sins of the past. We like to bring them back up, and we like to think that they are unforgiven still. Novelist Rita Mae Brown said, one of the keys to happiness is a bad memory. <laughs> Could be true, right? Mark Twain said, a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. But memory is more indelible than ink at times. And it has stained our past. And we like to stare at that stain but David says, don't, Lord, stare at the stain. Stare at your mercy. Stare at your steadfast love for me. Stare at that. That's our prayer, church family. That is our prayer. Lord, stare at your goodness, not at my sin. We're given permission to pray this way because it's in Scripture. And this is David's way of lifting up his soul. Transgression just means rebellion. David knew all about rebellion. If you recount David's life, he had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband, Uriah. David's failure to deal with his family, Amnon, who raped Tamar, and Absalom, taking matters into his own hand, and then separating uh, from his father, trying to kill his father. David's life was full of folly. And sin. David understood what he was talking about. This wasn't some empty prayer in verse 7. These were deep, dark sins. Murder. How many of you have committed murder? Don't raise your hands, all right? If I'm in the youth group and I ask that, three kids would raise their hand, right? But we have committed sin. Maybe a woman who laments her past of getting pregnant out of wedlock, or maybe it's the mistakes you made 
that led to a failed marriage, or maybe it's the failures in raising children to love you or love God. Maybe it's just poor choices in life that led to poor health that you feel guilty over. Or maybe it's just the nagging feeling you never measure up. Whatever it is, these are things that can plague us. And truth be told, like Scrooge, our paths are full of sin. And the only way to experience the joy of our salvation is to bury them in the soil of God's mercy. Bury them in the soil of God's mercy. You know, sometimes people fix their sin to an object. Let's just say, I don't know, it's a candle, you know. They fix their sin to the candle, and then what they do is they take that candle out to a field or somewhere, and they destroy it and bury it as a picture of them burying that sin. That's ways in which people handle maybe a sin of their past. They're like, it's buried, it's done. But That's exactly what God told Israel to do back in the Old Testament. Remember when he said, come to the tabernacle or the temple and bring that calf. And what I want you to do is I want you to put your hand on the calf's head and transfer your sin and your guilt to that calf. And then what you're going to see is the priest is going to slit the throat of that calf, let out its blood, and then it's going to be burnt and destroyed, signifying that that sin, that guilt has been destroyed. Well, friend, Hebrews tells us that they had to do that year after year after year. We have a more perfect sacrifice who is Jesus Christ, who once you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he takes and absorbs all of your sin for all eternity, past, present, and future upon himself so that we no longer have to deal with it. That's what David's saying in verse 6. Your mercy and your steadfast love are way bigger than my sin and your sin. So if I were to look at my past, I could remember the sin, but God has already covered it. That is the past. Now, what about the future or the present? The present is marked by God's steadfast love and goodness that teaches you God's way. Look at verses 20, uh, I'm sorry, verses uh, 7b, the second part of 7, and verses 8 and 9. He says, according to your steadfast love, there's our word again, according to our steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Three synonyms are used here, instruct, lead, and teach. Because of our sins, God needs to teach us in what is right. He needs to lead us to pure pasture, fertile ground of his teaching. When Leanna and I lived in Troy, New York, shortly after we were married, we would often make the hour-long trip to Manchester, Vermont, across the border. It was beautiful. Manchester, if you haven't been there, is a beautiful little town tucked in the, the green mountains. It's full of elegant hotels, nice fancy shops, high-end restaurants, and beautiful vistas. And to put it in perspective, we were coming from Troy, New York, the the People called Troy, Troylet. <laughs> it was an old, broken down city. 
we would take that hour-long trip across the border, and it was almost like the grass was greener on the other side of the fence. I was like, I finally found a place where the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. You would drive across the border, and it was plush fields full of sheep grazing. It was like going from darkness to light, from oppression to deliverance. (laughs) That's the way it is with God. We go from sin to these plush fields of God's teaching. This is the transformation that God gives us every Sunday as we come and hear the word of God preached. Today, our culture is marked by what's called or has been called moralistic therapeutic deism, a term coined by sociologists Christian Smith and Melina Lundquist-Denton in their 2005 book, Soul Searching. The term moralistic therapeutic deism essentially is the phenomenon that what is morally right is defined by popular culture rather than scripture. Up until recently, the Bible was still the standard for what was morally acceptable. Sin was hidden and shameful, and it wasn't paraded about because everyone knew the standard. But now that standard has changed, and now we are a post-Christian nation. This is why, and you, when you think about moralistic, therapeutic deism, we're talking about this way of feeling moral and yet not having a standard. If we take our cues from popular culture, then what is right is wrong, and what is wrong is right. So notice God in his goodness instructs us. He has to. If left to ourself, then we would choose to do wrong, and we would call it right, as we're seeing the world do today. I read about an article in an article yesterday about a museum in Germany. Maybe you saw this where they uh, depicted Jesus as a transgender figure. Because that's morally acceptable today. It's morally right. It flies. But not for us as Christians. We're not buying that. And so what God does in verses 8 and 9, he's good and upright so that he instructs us because we don't know within ourselves what is right. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. We need to know his way. If we take our cues again from popular culture, we will be all mixed up. So what is God doing for you in the present? He is teaching you. He's instructing you. He's leading you. That's the goodness of our God. And we do well to accept that. The Bible says it two times, the humble receive it. Pour it on, Lord. Pour it on because I know that I need it. I need this. Well, that's the past and the present. What about the future? Things yet to be. Well, it should come to no surprise that things yet to be are still marked by God's steadfast love. Look at verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his mercy. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, his steadfast love extends as far to the past as it does to the future. 
When it says in verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, the coupling of steadfast love and faithfulness is used elsewhere in Scripture to signify that all the paths of the Lord lead to salvation. It's referring to the saving acts of the Lord. Therefore, things yet to be are marked by steadfast love that leads to your salvation. What is your future? Your salvation. What does that mean? You'll have eternal life with God forever. God says this is true for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. Those who walk in the way of the Lord. Those who are faithful to the Lord. David is concerned about his future, the future of his people, Israel. And the thing that's on David's mind is salvation. For Scrooge, all he could see was an open casket and death. It brought him to a point where he begged the spirit of things yet to be to give him a second chance. Of course, we have a more glorious Christmas carol this morning. We have a Savior who has opened his arms, and he said, Whosoever will, come unto me, shall have eternal life. Yea, and all who call upon me shall have eternal life. Those whom he called, he will know I cast out. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an open call. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a second chance. There may be some in this auditorium this morning who don't know. You don't know where your future lies. You're kind of like Scrooge. You're kind of like wondering about your future. And yet the Lord has given you this wonderful thing called salvation, and that was on David's mind. Look at verse 22. I don't know if I have it on the screen, but you can look at in your, I think I do, verse 22. This is David's prayer. He ends the psalm with this, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And if you can redeem Israel, I know you can redeem me. This is David's prayer. So what does God do with that prayer? Hundreds and hundreds of years later, he answers it. He answers it. Look at Matthew 1, 18 through 21. This passage that Pastor Brad, Brad uh, read this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. David's prayer was answered. Some of you are praying for a loved one. 
It's heavy on your heart. Why is it heavy on your heart? Because the Holy Spirit has placed it there. And it could very well be that God intends to save that one. This is the beauty of God. His loving kindness transcends time. In 1849, there was another man who wrote another Christmas carol who was also brought low by the sins of the world. His name was Edmund Sears. He wrote a song during a period of personal melancholy and with news of revolution in Europe and the United States' war with Mexico fresh on his mind, Sears portrayed the world as dark, full of sin and strife, and not hearing the Christmas message. So in an attempt to draw men's attention to the greatest story ever told, he penned, it came upon a midnight clear. And like Dickens and like David in Psalm 25, Sears focuses on the past, the present, and the future as a way to point to the glorious story of God. We're going to end the service by singing upon a midnight clear. So I'm going to ask the band if they would come at this time. And I want you to pay particular attention to the words of this song and how this glorious song that was sung by the angels that night to the shepherds transcends throughout the world, even in a dark world. And he'll talk about war, and he'll talk about death, and, and yet at the end, the prophets foretell of this glorious message of peace and goodwill to all men. Let us stand and let us sing together this message. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.